All right. Well, we're going to not be in 1 Corinthians today. I want to jump down into Joshua, in Joshua chapter 5. And this is really a message that I, I did I, about a year ago at Gateway. We have our annual leadership conference that's coming up in October again. And usually what happens is that there's the pulpit swap, we call it, where all the preachers go to different places. I can't remember who might have come here last year. Does anybody remember? Doesn't matter. Pardon? Peter Todd came down? Yeah, that's right. That rings a bell. So, and I, I shared out of this passage with them. And one of the ways that God talks to me is he actually brings back messages I've done way back in the way back time and will help me to interpret or at least understand my present out of something that I've preached from the past, which is a blessing for me. So I want to read, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 5, probably in a passage you may not have heard preached on too recently. It, it is one of my weird twitches is that I, I'm really drawn to the unusual passages of the Bible. I will probably never preach a message about getting out of the boat in the storm. It's just, that's what everybody does. Okay, Jesus comes and there's a storm in life and he's in the boat. Great. But let's talk about Balaam's donkey, because that's weird. You know what I mean? I'm drawn to the weird stuff and, and wonderful. If you remember Joshua, the big, the big part of Joshua as a book is that it is the entrance into the promised land. God had promised Abraham about 500 years before this happened that his descendants would occupy all the nation of Israel. But what happened was that in Abraham's grandchildren slash great-grandchildren's time, a famine came in the land, and Israel moved into Egypt when Joseph was the prince of Egypt. And they stayed there in Egypt for about 400 years, becoming slaves in that time. And then God rescued Israel by doing powerful signs and wonders, the ten plagues, and he rescued Israel from their bondage in Egypt at that time. And the plan had been to kind of go and meet with God at Mount Sinai and then take a rather direct route into the promised land. But that first generation that came out of Egypt, when they saw the giants in the land, they decided they didn't want to go in. Do you remember that? Which, again, is crazy when you read the book to think that you'd be afraid of giants in the land days after God destroyed the greatest nation in the world. That's crazy. But that's what our hearts are like, right? Most of the time, we tend to think that whatever big thing God just did is the last big thing God's going to do. And so the next big trouble that comes our way is going to be the one that ruins everything. That was their story. And so as a kind of judgment over that generation, God said that none of them were going to enter the promised land. And then he led them on a very long walking tour of the desert for 40 years until all of that generation that was supposed to inhabit the land passed away. And now Joshua is picking up when they're about to cross the border into the promised land and wage war to remove the Canaanites who are a very wicked and evil people. And God is going to use Israel as his judgment on them. And this is that book. 
And Joshua chapter 5 takes place in the midst of amazing stories. Some of my uh, sermon research, I, I like to Google pictures and try to find some famous art pieces every once in a while of, of stories from the Bible. And if you Google the Joshua chapter 3, 4, 5, 6 area, there are so many pictures of the story of God stopping the Jordan River, which was at flood stage, so it's massive. It is not crossable, but God stops it by having the priests carry the Ark of the Covenant into the river, and as soon as their feet touch the water, the water heaps up way down the river so that the entire nation can walk through the Jordan as on dry land, which is meant to remind them of going through the Red Sea, and God is trying to exalt Joshua through this, that he's going to be with Joshua just like he was through Moses, and this is such a great story, and people need to paint paintings of it, and Sunday schools need pictures of it, and kids need to learn about it, and how awesome is this? And in the same area, you have the story of the fall of the walls of Jericho, which is just so cool. God says to his people, I want you to march around this city for six days, right? You remember it? And, and the, the priests are going to be blowing their trumpets. I don't even know it, that, like that scene from The Return of the King. And the Ride of the Rohirrim, except not like that. And they're supposed to march around the city six days in a row. And Joshua says, nobody's allowed to say anything. Shh. So they're marching around the city and all the Jerichoans or whatever they're called, Jerichites, um, they're making fun of them the whole time and telling them off and everyone's just quiet. And then on the seventh day or the sixth day, I can't remember exactly which one, they, they do the tour six times and then they all give a great shout and the walls come down. And then Israel just charges in and it's a total, total victory, flawless victory. And, um, and then there's this cool story in there where Joshua meets the captain of the armies of the Lord. Where one day they're kind of just waiting around to move and all of a sudden they see this guy with a sword standing on a hill and Joshua kind of walks up to him and this, this person's obviously a very impressive military figure and Joshua asks him this question, are you for us or for our enemies? Right? And, and the angel's famous answer, no, I'm for the Lord. Right? Boom! Theology. God, are you for us or against us? God says, I'm for me. The question is, are you for me? Boom! Awesome. And right in the midst of this, these amazing stories of God's presence and power, there's this story of the time when a million people had to get circumcised. Awkward. Joshua chapter 5. I will read it for you. These are the very words of God. This, this happens right after they get through the Jordan River and they've taken these 12 stones out of the bottom of the river and piled them up as a memorial to remind them that this was the place that God led an entire nation through a dry riverbed. Joshua chapter 5, as soon as the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Ha'araloth. 
And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who had came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they'd come out of Egypt. And though all the people who had come out had been circumcised, it all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they'd come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children who he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. These are the very words of God. God, I pray that you come and you'd help me. I pray that you come and you'd help each one of us. God, I know that uh, serving your word is a grace that you help by the Holy Spirit. And Father, I also know that hearing the word with understanding is a grace that you supply by the Holy Spirit. And that we can lift up our hearts to you and say, help us understand you and your word. And there's help for that, even supernaturally. So God, would you in our midst help us to know you and love you and that our faith and humility would rise in your presence for your glory. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. So, as I said, that this message really is me talking to me. This is me um, being reminded of a message I did before, and God just speaking to me through this. So, one of the things I wanted to say is, I know we're just post-church review. Uh, There are no secret uh, comebacks. There are no little traps or touches or slights. If I say something that makes you think, is he talking to me because of something that happened last few weeks? The answer is no, I'm not doing that. Um, this, This message is for me and you're welcome to be here. But one of the things I want to do right off the bat is say this. What is the point of circumcising probably over a million people on the other side of the Jordan. For me, this is the most important line in this entire story. And I'm going to work through a few things, but I want to, from the outset, give us God's perspective. Why in the world would he, after making his people cross the river, say, it's cosmetic surgery time for half of you, half of an entire nation? Well, God tells us, His intention is to roll away the reproach from Egypt. His intention is to roll away an object of shame, to roll away um, an event that could bring reproach or insult or scorn. His intention is to bring his people into a place of honor. Honor in his sight. Praise in his sight. He wants to glorify them. Okay, it's right there in the book. Today I have removed from you any reproach from your past as you face the future. That's God's intention. And so right off the bat, I just want to say, this is our God. What motivates him when he works with his people? He wants to bring us to a place of glory. He doesn't just want a bunch of forgiven sinners. 
he wants a bunch of glorified saints. That's his end goal, to present us to the universe shining in the robes of Christ's righteousness, brighter than the sun so that no one could even look upon us because of the glory he wants to give us by grace. That's his end game. Glory and honor and praise before all of his angels. That's our God. It can just be a really weird journey getting there. So I see this story and I see a bunch of tests for myself that the Israelites had to go through with this command to circumcise their soldiers and pretty much every other man-child in Israel at this time. Because it said anybody who is 40 years old um, is dead. There's no nobody over 40 in Israel at this time except for Joshua and Caleb because God promised them because they wanted to go into the promised land that they would get to. They were the only two people in Israel who had faced, faced the first time in. So they were going to get to go in. They're the old dudes. Everybody else is under 40 because everybody else has died. And none of the men have been circumcised. And so they, they have this thing where now they need to be circumcised. And if you remember, circumcision was the sign of the covenant for the children of Abraham. When God gave Abraham this promise that he was going to inherit the land and, and have offspring that could not be numbered, he said... The sign that I'm going to keep this promise to you is this, that you're going to get circumcised and all of your children after you are going to get circumcised. It's the sign of a covenant that God has made a promise with the people of Israel. And we too have a sign of a covenant. We actually have two. Circumcision is not a big deal for Christians, but we do have two signs of being in covenant with God. And the first is baptism. If you're a Christian and you want to receive the promise of a new life in Christ and being forgiven of all your sins, you get baptized. It's a picture of dying with Christ and being raised from him. And we also have an ongoing sign of the covenant, which is the communion table, where we come back again and again and remember that Jesus died for our sins. So those are our signs of the covenant. But the biggest one for Israel was circumcision. And they hadn't been doing it for 40 years. It's a long time to forget to do something. And so God tells joshua to make these flint knives and so i'm i'm gonna allow myself one little joke in this message when every time i start thinking about this message i just hear in my head flintstones meet the flintstones and then i go i don't want to meet the flintstones i know what flintstones are used for and the flintstone really is a kind of rock that if you hit it at just the right angle it will break off in a way that produces a very sharp edge okay that's what a flint knife is it's not metal because you can't produce 50,000 metal knives overnight in order to circumcise a nation. The only quick way to make blades is to break off flint stones. And so Joshua was just sitting there for a day. He'd have rocks delivered to him, and people are just hitting stones, trying to produce these really sharp edges, which aren't that sharp. And so the first test that Israel had to go through in this situation here was the test of facing pain, which is a test that the people of God have to face. A lot of what God wants us to do is painful. A lot of following Jesus is painful. Amen? This is the first test. And one of the things I just, I think that this story is such a miracle that they did it. Like, how do you actually get, um, the end of Numbers says that there's about 600,000 soldiers, men, a fighting age between the ages of 20 and 40, how do you actually get 600 soldiers to show up to cut, cut them there with rocks? 
How many sick notes do you think people would be handing in in those days? I'm sorry, I've just come down with the bubonic plague. Actually, I'm a leper now. I'm bleeding from the eyes. I've got dropsy. Um, I can't come to your party, Joshua. Anybody? Like, we're scared of needles. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Some people are. Some people aren't. I can't look at it when they put the needle in. I'll be because I'm thinking there's blood coming out of me. Imagine it was a rock. So there's this test of facing pain. And what that touches in me is that there's a part of me that wants to follow Jesus comfortably all the time, right? Right? I'll follow you, Jesus, as long as it involves the promotion and you're getting some more money. I'll follow you, Jesus, as long as every sermon's great and I never accidentally say something terrible that offends everybody. I'll follow you, Jesus, as long as everybody just has more and more fun all the time. I'll follow you, Jesus, as long as all of my loved ones go to heaven. I'll follow you, Jesus, so long as it doesn't hurt. The test of facing pain. And the reality is, is that Jesus already warned us before any of this started that in order to follow him, you have to pick up your cross daily. And a cross is, is an instrument of your, your own death. And so I think it just, it just tells me again, it's like, Rob, it, it's going to hurt to follow Jesus. And, and we need to be willing to face pain. We must not mind a little suffering on our way to glory. As someone said before, the second test this reminds me of is the humility test. I think that it would have been tremendously humbling to be cut that way in front of your friends and family. Right? These are the kinds of things that you don't even talk about. Um, in, in fact, I have been in the hospital a couple times the last little bit for for procedures or illnesses and other things and one of the things that go through goes through my mind is well i hope one of the nurses from church don't show up during this <laughs> and nurses are great they've they've seen every kind of bodily fluid come out of every single body part before and they're well past being made uncomfortable but but even so And it just, I can't help but think that at least some of the people in the nation would have felt like it was tremendously humbling as an adult to show up for this procedure that's going to be done in front of or by leaders or neighbors and then to have to get carried back to your tent (laughs) where you spend the next three or four days earning that rumor that women sometimes share that men aren't good at handling pain. As they talk about all the children that they've given birth to and wonder why you're still just lying there. They had to show up for a tremendously humbling experience. And this is God's way of removing any shame from their life. This was the path to being glorified in God's sight. 
they also had to endure the vulnerability test. And for this one, I just want to bring you into a bit of military theory. Not that I know anything about it, but I've read a few books. And one of the worst things to do as a military leader is to actually station your army beside a gigantic river. Because if a battle comes up, your soldiers don't have anywhere to run away and regroup. It's either death by sword or death by drowning. And one of the most famous battles in all of human history that was performed by Hannibal, if you've ever heard of Hannibal's invasion of Rome, where he marched his war elephants over the Alps. War elephants! Let's see some... Google it! I want a war elephant. Um, what he did was he, he kept his soldiers far away from this river in the north of Rome, and the Roman army, which was so insulted and angry that Hannibal would even try to bring war elephants into Rome, they woke up in the morning and saw that some of his soldiers were there, and they forded the river and started a battle, but Hannibal had held back some of his reserves, and he did a sneak attack on their flank once they were on the other side of the river, and he killed like 50,000 people in a day because they were either going to get run over by the horses or that when they fled, they ran into the river they had just come across, and they're covered in metal armor. They just drowned. And so God has done this tremendous miracle of stopping the river and bringing his people over to the side closest to Jericho, which is a city with an army. And now, at this point, when the river starts flowing again and they have nowhere to run and nowhere to hide, this is when he tells all of his soldiers to, to injure themselves, that place. And every one of those Israelite soldiers would remember their family history from the book of Genesis about how Levi and Simeon destroyed the city of Shechem. So if you've been doing the reading story, you'll remember that Shechem was a prince of the town of Shechem who um, kidnapped Dinah. And what her brothers did was they said to Shechem, because they wanted to, he wanted to marry her, well, we can't let you marry her because you're uncircumcised. So you and all your city need to get circumcised and then you can get married. And so they went back and they were like, this is a great thing. And the whole city got circumcised. And then Levi and Simeon, two people showed up to a city on the third day when, these, when the men of the city were at their, their worst in suffering. And these two guys killed everybody in that city because they couldn't stand up. It only took Levi and Simeon, who are nations over there. The entire nation of Simeon is lying there. All their soldiers can't move. And they have nowhere to run because there's a river right there. And there's armies of soldiers in front of them who know that they're already at war and are be willing to kill them. Think about how vulnerable all of these people would feel. It would only take a hundred guys to kill most of those soldiers because they couldn't stand up. Think about the wives. Looking and thinking, man, if Jericho comes out right now, I'm, I'm a slave. I'm, me and all the kids are slaves. You're dead and I'm a slave because you can't do nothing. Talk about feeling uncovered. They are inexpressibly vulnerable as a people. And if God doesn't protect them, which he did by making everybody afraid, They'd, they'd all be dead or slaves. The test of facing being vulnerable 
where you can't defend yourself and you can't protect yourself and you can't explain it. You can't, if an army showed up, you couldn't just say, wait, 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 no, God told us to do this. Can we just have two more weeks? Please? <laughs> no, it's not a fair fight. So it's kind of like, you know, the refs, uh, there's no refs, you're dead. <sighs> the vulnerability test. There's a repentance test here going on. Um, God is showing up after 40 years of God's people not doing something and saying, I would like you to start obeying me now. Okay. You notice that? They used to circumcise their kids for 400 years, and then when they started the wanderings, they stopped doing it. And so there was an entire generation, except for Joshua and Caleb, nobody had circumcised anybody. And God's saying, you're not being faithful to my word. You're supposed to be doing this. It is difficult to repent of a culture that's been around for 40 years. It is difficult to start obeying God's word when you don't know anybody who's done it before. Amen? Do you know this? I mean, the reality is most of us just do what we think most of us do. That's how people work. We, we work by peer pressure. We work by, is this normal? We work by what everybody else is doing is what I'm going to do. This is kind of how it works. And so to have God show up and say, actually, you're, you're all going to do everything different in a way you've never done before, that's a test. Amen? And it's hard to go back. It's really easy if you're obeying to keep obeying. Obeying God helps makes it easier to obey God. And disobeying God makes it easier to disobey God. And there's momentum built up in these things. Um, just because I'm already bugging the youth and I won't stop, if you start tithing with your first job when you're 17, it's easy to keep tithing for the rest of your life because you're always doing it. If you get convinced that tithing is God's will or giving radically to his kingdom when you're 35 or 40 or 45, that's tougher because you're used to spending it all on yourself, right? So imagine an entire nation full of people being told, you all have been doing it wrong your entire lives, it's time to repent. Don't you think somebody might just say, well, God's been with us. Like, didn't you just see us walk through the river? Why do we need to get circumcised? Like, God's been with us. He obviously doesn't think circumcision is that big, or else he would have just left us on the other side of the river until we did it. But he just let us see the river, and so... How can this be a big deal? So far, so good. Whew. Have you ever been in that place where you know that you're called to repent of something in order to obey God's word? It's hard to change your life when you've got 10 years or 20 years or 30 years of habit behind something. It's not easy. This is a huge test for them that they would be willing to change everything at such pain. I feel like there's a forgiveness test in here. If someone comes along and tells Robert Balfour that he's been doing something wrong for the last 39 years, do you know what one of the first things I want to do is? Figure out who I need to blame for things being like this. I don't even have to be 38 years. I'm not even 39 yet. It could be three months. It could be three hours. It could be three minutes. It could be three seconds. Who do you think that Israel could have blamed for all these uncircumcisions that didn't happen or did happen? 
probably Moses. They were used to blaming him for other stuff already. And he was the leader all this time. How come he didn't tell everybody that they should have been circumcising their kids? He wrote Genesis. And he just let it happen for all those years. And now he's dead, so we can't even kill him. I think there could have been this huge temptation to be like, this, this reason that I have to have an intimate interaction with a piece of rock is all Moses' fault. Or Joshua. Or the Lord's. How come God didn't tell us we needed to do this before we got over the Jordan River? We just spent 40 years wandering around the desert. He couldn't have said something in all that time? Maybe it's just me. But the issue was this. That was God's time to deal with it because God wanted to deal with it. And so God was the issue. Not what didn't happen and not who didn't do what. And don't blame your mom because it would have been so much easier to get circumcised on eight days old instead of 38 years old. I mean, you wouldn't even remember it, right? Like eight-day-old kids don't even know what normal is. So, oh, so people cut you? Okay. Cry for a bit and then want some milk and off we go. I think this would have been a huge opportunity for them to just be upset with their leaders again because they'd been doing that a lot in the desert. But miraculously, they they wanted to just obey and they went for it. And finally, there's this human folly test. And I think that this this is an ongoing one, especially for us in the West, because we always have the best ideas about how things should happen, right? Right? We all we we know. We know that having your roof spring a leak so that you can water a horse outside of children's ministry is not the right time. Right? We know that. That's that's not how you're supposed to run the world. We know that if you're gonna have a time of repenting before people, that should happen before you've spent half a million dollars on a church renovation and have to go through with it. We know the building should be sold by now. These are all the things we know. It would be just foolish to do things otherwise. And man, just think of how foolish it would have felt lying around healing when you're supposed to be fighting wars because God said, now's the right time to do this. It's such a great story because there should have been 100,000 people going, no, no, this is the wrong time. What we'd like to do is destroy Jericho first, keep the walls, and then circumcise everybody from inside the walls where you got the walls to protect yourself. That's the smart thing to do. Haven't you ever read a book of God? And God's like, yeah, I'm actually writing one right now. It's cool. It's about how strong I am in the midst of your weakness and how smart I am in the midst of your folly, not the other way around. Oh, will it sell? I think there are more Bibles than people in the world right now. That's my understanding. All these tests, facing pain, facing situations that could feel humiliating, facing 
being vulnerable and you can't protect or defend yourself. Facing having to really embrace repentance that will mean changing your life. Facing having to forego getting offended at people and just forgiving people and just doing something because God's calling you to do it. And facing the test of thinking that this can't be right, even though God wants us to do it. These are all massive tests. I think they're tests that I'm facing. I think they're tests that we're facing. I think they're tests that are some of you are facing. Which brings me to why it was so good that Israel responded with faith. It's because of this. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in that place in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place is called Gilgal, which means to roll something to this day. All of these tests that I'm listing, do you, do you know what they do when we embrace them? They make God so big in our life. They make his, his presence so precious to us. They, they increase our confidence in him when we see him follow through and protect us and make good things happen. They help us to get away from trusting in our own strengths. Do you, do you know what happens to us when we trust in our own strength? We get really anxious. Anybody? Yeah. And God brings these tests around and says, how about face the test of vulnerability and you go through it, you know what happens? You get more peace for the rest of your life. Because you're like, oh, that's what God's really like. I can trust him. When you keep going forward, when it seems like you're getting more and more reasons to not go forward, it doesn't seem wise, but it seems like it's what God wants us to do and you keep moving forward, you know what happens? You get more faith in him. And he shows up. He shows up and does stuff. We don't, I know you know this, but we don't want to be a church that impresses everybody. We want to be a church where God shows up. You know what the price of being a church where God shows up is? Sometimes facing pain, having to humble yourself, being vulnerable a lot, repenting when he calls you to, forgiving and just kind of obeying God. And not judging what he wants to do. That's the cost of God saying, this is a people I'm proud of. This is a people I long to honor. This is a people I want to do, to, to honor publicly. And so what I think we can do, and thanks for everybody for bearing with me, I have failed again to, to put this into a bite-sized morsel that fits in 40 minutes or less. But I think we're going to worship And I want to say this to you. As God is my witness, this is a wonderful season to meet with the Lord, to get freer, to get wholer, to get stronger in Him. This is what He's doing right now. Nobody here is out to get you. Nobody here wants you to fail. Nobody here wants to humiliate you. 
But we do have these callings from God to say, now is a great time to humble yourself before me, wherever you might need to, because I want to honor you. And I think, I think throughout the week, this has kind of been in my head. We've got communion next week, which is a covenant ceremony. And I want to spend the next week going, God, what do I need to do so that I can be as consecrated to you for communion next Sunday? Maybe I need to pull the flint knife out again. Maybe I missed a spot. And if you want to join with me in this week and just asking the Holy Spirit to talk to you. Holy Spirit, is there somewhere where I need to humble myself? Is there something I need to face? Is there not something I need to forgive? Is there some way I need to repent? Is there some way I need to just embrace your plan and, and not run? I think the Lord would be pleased to honor us. Amen. So if you want to just stand with me, you can stand or sit. Father, thank you so much. I think this is one of these hard truths, Lord. Because we have sinful hearts and we feel guilty by nature, it's hard to imagine that your deepest desire is to honor your people. To glorify us. To present us whole and beautiful in your sight. And Father, because of that, I know I have often not gone down the path that leads to glory and shied away from tests like these. Forgive me again. But Lord, without any guilt or pressure, Lord, for everybody who's got a willing heart, would you show us what we can do to consecrate ourselves to you afresh? So that as you lead us into the promised land of 305 Main Street, we would be in that place where you're most desirous to honor us. And we're most free in your sight. For every willing heart, may God fulfill this prayer. Amen.